0: I want you to rewind for just a minute to your school days. I realize for some of us, this is a farther rewind than the others. Um, for, some of us, it, for some of us, it requires us to even know what the word rewind means, right? I mean, just the DVD just start back at the beginning. Um, and in those moments when you were studying all night for a big test, uh, many of us have had this experience where we're getting ready for the test, We're ready to go, and we have 95% of the information down. But there's 5% that we just can't get. And there comes a point in the evening where you stop studying, and you start just praying that the teacher doesn't ask (laughs) about that particular information. And so you get there for the day of the test. You're ready to go. First page looks good, looks good, looks good, looks good. You flip the back page of the last page. Essay question, boom. The question you didn't want to have to answer. And just think of the dread that starts to come over you. You go, oh no, I'm going to have to try to answer this to the best of my ability. The teacher is going to know that I'm kind of faking it because I don't totally understand this, but I guess I'll just make the best of it. Um, this is how a preacher feels when certain texts are on his calendar to talk about in church. There are certain texts we come to and go, Oh man, is that this week? Who, or who wrote this thing? Who picked this? Why did we say we were going to talk about this? Why don't we skip this chapter of the Bible? It's, it feels a little bit um, like trying to defuse a bomb. You just know this is a really hard text. I don't know what to do with it. And the sweat beads start to come down. You're like, red wire, blue wire... It is a scary thing to do, and we are at one of those texts this week. We have been talking about the Holy Spirit all summer, and we have now reached the point where we need to talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Even giving a title for the sermon is difficult because different theologians will fuss at you if you use the right or wrong words for what we're talking about. Charismata, spiritual gifts, gifts of the spirit. Uh, Those things may sound all the same to you, but people really freak out about this. Because it's a subject that we've used to beat each other up for a really, really, really long time. Uh, Particularly in the 20th century, the wars over spiritual gifts and how they work and how they don't work and what the Bible says or what the Bible doesn't say have been difficult. And one of the really frustrating parts is that it's text that we can read and come away from very differently. I know people who will read Corinthians 12 and 14 and they will go, oh, I love that passage because it shows us how we all have these great spiritual gifts. And another guy reads it and goes, I love that passage because it tells us about why all those gifts have ceased and we don't have to worry about them anymore. And the two people can see them completely differently. This is a passage that has caused some to feel so alive in the Lord and others to thank God that we don't have this weird, crazy world of what the Corinthian church dealt with when they dealt with these spiritual gifts. And people are very divided on that. As we start today, I want to remind us that one of the things that I have loved about the story of this church is that we've had people from really diverse backgrounds that can get along on things that don't totally agree on things. I remember once uh, hanging out, this was a long time ago, we were with the Cottrells and the Augers and the Lees and the Borchers. And someone, I won't say who, said something along the lines of, yeah, you know, I'm just so thankful that God controls my destiny and that my future is predestined. And some of us in the room went, what? You think that? Because most of us didn't. Most of us were free will people. We had this really great conversation. We said, I can love Jesus and you can love Jesus. And we can disagree about how preordained or not the future is. Because what we care about is that we love the Lord. And so I just want to encourage you with that. I want to set that as the opening thing. I may say something about spiritual gifts today that sounds really weird and unusual to you on one side or the other. I have, I'm an equal opportunity offender, I think, um, on spiritual gifts. And if, it's, if you go, oh, that's kind of weird, that's okay. As a reminder, I do my best to share God's word as I believe it teaches us, but I am not infallible. I have not attempted to be a pope, and I don't want to be. And so if you hear something and go, I think Caleb has that wrong— it's really possible I just have it wrong. And that's okay, because we can live in community together when we disagree on things. All that is a really long preamble to talk about this book. And the one thing I am sure of, I may not be infallible, but there's one thing I'm sure of about the book of First Corinthians and the spiritual gifts. And that is that spiritual gifts are supposed to bring us together and not tear us apart. Now, this sounds really ironic given how many church splits and denominations we've seen created and new movements created because of people differing on spiritual gifts. But we need to remember that 1 Corinthians is always and first most a book about getting along with other people. The Corinthian church is a notoriously difficult church. This is the problem child of Paul's ministry. Corinth is a church where he always goes, Oh, I've got to deal with these guys again. Right? There's some churches he goes to and he's refreshed and he loves being with them. The Corinthians is always a long day at work for Paul. And the problem with them is they're always fighting. They can't ever get along. It's like kids, constant squabbling. I mean, we're dealing with this right now. Our kids always fight, just as the way the Corinthian church is. They're always fighting. And 1 Corinthians is essentially Paul dealing with a bucket list, a honey-do list, of every problem that they want to divide over. Uh, I'm gonna give them to you real quick. The text is on the screen because I'm going fast. They fight over who's the best teacher. Paul says, one of you says I follow Apollo, another I follow Apollos. Are not all those people human beings? He starts out with saying, you can't sit here and be like Team Paul, Team Apollos. You're not an Apollos Christian or A Paul Christian, you're a Jesus Christian. And he gets on them about debating over those things. They're fighting about what sexual ethics looks like. It's reported that there's sexual morality among you, and the kind that pagans don't tolerate. A man sleeping with his father's wife. Are you proud? And there's this whole debate. There's some Christians that think that um, sleeping with whoever you want, whenever you want, is somehow a sign of Christian maturity. And Paul's got to deal with that. It's causing a division in their church. Uh, how do Christians resolve conflict? The very fact you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Paul says Christians should be able to get along. We should not have to go to court to let a non-Christian judge us. We should be able to handle it in-house. If you have an agreement, take disagreement, take care of it. Uh, How should Christians interact with idolatry? He talks a lot about food sacrificed to idols and how some people are doing things that are technically okay, but they're hurting other people's feelings and they're causing people to fall away from the church. And there's just a lot of conflict in that. What should men and women wear as they worship? Paul says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And this is totally bizarre to us, but basically, they're just fighting about how you dress at church. And when somebody gets up front to do a prayer, do they do it with their head covered? Or do they do it with their head uncovered? And it's kind of a fight, because Jews do it one day, and Gentiles do it another way. They're fighting any and every reason to not get along. Uh, finally, before this passage, how do you take the Lord's Supper? When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person's hungry, and the other one's getting drunk. And so now even at the Lord's table, they're causing social divisions amongst each other. The point of all of this is this whole letter is written by Paul to try to glue the china back together. These people have been sitting and breaking up with each other and fighting with each other and being nasty to each other all day long about everything in the world. And this letter is about saying, no, you guys got to get along. Stop fighting about all this stuff. It's not the way God wants it to be. And so the one thing I am confident about about the spiritual gifts passage is this is on Paul's laundry list of things that have to be dealt with. And like everything else on this list, it needs to be dealt with in a way that brings them together and not tears them apart. Which, for those of you that know this passage, is the irony, right? Because it's a passage that so often causes us to tear each other apart. All right, let's get to the actual passage. Enough preamble. 1 Corinthians 12. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, to teach one of the manifestations of the Spirit is given for the common... Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there's given through a spirit... uh, is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between Spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and still another the interpretation of tongues. All of these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Take just a moment to say we do have our question and answer cards in the pews. If you have questions, I will give you one caveat. This is a two-part sermon. We're going to do half of this passage this week and half next week. And so I may pick up your question and go, I'm going to get to that next week because I'm particularly scared of it or just because I think it will be more helpful. But nonetheless, if you do have questions, feel free to write those down. Um, It's helpful for us to remember the context here. The Corinthian church has a lot of of people who grew up in paganism that worshipped at a temple like the Temple to Athena. This is a copy of it that we have now in Nashville that shows what it would have looked like to worship in a pagan uh, temple. This is what the goddess would have looked like inside the Parthenon. And they're used to coming into the temple and doing things the pagan way. And so when you look at a lot of Paul's disagreements, they're because he has Gentile Greek Christians who are still trying to figure out this Judeo-Christian ethic. This is why, earlier, I talked about the sexual problems. And people are like, how could they think that's a good idea? Well, because if you worship Athena, then that kind of sexual ethic is normal. And so they're just taking their old way of life and bringing it to their new way of life. They're not as used to monogamy as Jews are, okay? So this is part of this challenge. Even when we talk about spiritual gifts, the way you operate and behave at church is going to look a lot like the synagogue if you grew up going to synagogue. And it's going to look a lot like the temple to Aphrodite if you grew up going to the temple of Aphrodite. It's just natural. That's how you were taught to go to church. For those of you who grew up Catholic and then moved to a Protestant church, you probably caught yourself crossing yourself or bending down every once in a while just doing Catholic kind of stuff because that's how you were taught to worship. And this is the same challenge that they're having. They were taught to worship the the Greek Gentile way, and they're trying to figure out how to do it. But it's really helpful that Paul begins and he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. It's interesting that he assumes that ignorance is going to be a major challenge for these people. Right? It's like, this is just a very subtle bit of shade that he throws their way. I don't want you to be ignorant, which you will be. And then he immediately goes on. But then he clears the floor in this really beautiful way. Because one of the first things out of his mouth is you can't be a follower of Jesus and say, Jesus, be cursed. And you can't say Jesus is Lord and not be a follower of Jesus. This is an excellent floor-clearing exercise for us. That if you disagree with someone else on this passage and they say Jesus is Lord, they have the Holy Spirit in them, even if you think they have the wrong thing, thinking about the Holy Spirit. He's giving us a very easy and simple criteria to determine who's God's people and who are not. And so he, he gives that as the kind of opening thing. He then goes on to talk about these gifts that that God gives. We've talked about how um, people aren't sure exactly how to use those uh, terms. Are they spiritual gifts? Are they manifestations of the Spirit? There's all kinds of different language for this. But basically, these are things that a person can do because the Holy Spirit is empowering them to do that thing. And Paul is very clear here with his language that these are a gift. They are a present They are something that is given to the church for the benefit of the church. This is really important. I think it helps wrap our minds around this. Spiritual gifts are a lot like financial gifts in the scriptures. The reason you're given a gift of any kind in the Bible from God, whether it be something spiritual, financial, physical, whatever, is so that you can share that gift. That gift is not for you that gift is so that you may bless others. There's supposed to always be this knock-on effect, this overflowing, that it's poured into you, and then you pour it back out into other people. And this is what Paul says here about spiritual gifts. He says the reason these things are here is so that you may bless the church. These are for other people. They're not just for yourselves. And so these spiritual gifts are meant to be passed on, to move on to the next. Paul then gives us a list of these. Now, this is helpful. This is a chart here that shows us uh, Romans 12. It has a sp- uh, list of spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 has this list. 1 Peter 4 has a couple of gifts as- listed as well. Uh, also, anyone you talk to will fight about what should be on the list, what should not be on the list, should Ephesians 4, and prophets and teachers and pastors, should that be on the list? We won't fight about it. We'll just talk about this list. I want to give a brief description of... Just because Paul goes through them quick and you may not know what they mean. I don't promise I know what they mean, but I know what I've studied this week. Uh, Paul talks about wisdom, a word of wisdom or message of wisdom. Uh, Generally, we think that this means someone who has a good discernment or a good ability to judge something. A word of wisdom goes, we're trying to make a decision. Someone goes, what we should do is this. And it feels like God has supernaturally given them wisdom about the best decision to make. Then talks about a message of knowledge. Uh, generally, Christians believe this to be something you know that you shouldn't be able to know. Um, these, this feels a little weirder. We're starting to get into twilight zone for some of you. But I have seen this one happen. I think I felt it a time or two where you're talking to somebody and... They're talking about how life's really, really hard. And they're talking about their job, or their job, their job, their job. And then all of a sudden you look at them and you say, "When your kids called you about something last week, didn't they? And they go, I don't want to talk about that. And you go, well, that's the problem, isn't it? And you don't know why you said that, okay? You don't have a good reason to say that. You don't know where it came. You just said, no, this is not it. You just have this clearness of mind. They are not telling me the full truth. There's something deeper here. Now, that's the way I talk about it. Sometimes in some churches, it's guessing people's address and, you know, how many um, ice creams they ate last week or something. I don't know. Sometimes it feels like a little more pedantic of information to Caleb's opinion. But nonetheless, it's this idea of knowing something that you wouldn't have any way of knowing except by the movement of the spirit. Um, The next one, faith. Well, we should all have faith, right? Yes, but there is a sense in Scripture that there's a spiritual gift of faith. If you've ever known somebody who just doesn't doubt, like they have the hardest things happen in life, and never once do they go, oh, I don't know. Is this really true? Can I really trust God? They just always are there, and their faith is always on fire. And you go, how is that possible? Well, Paul says some people spiritually just have that gift. The Holy Spirit moves in them that they believe and trust God in a way that's beyond any normal uh, sense of it. Um, Gifts of healing. Okay, this is physically healing people, right? This is finding someone who has an ailment and healing them. Again, we're starting to get into the ones that make some of us feel uncomfortable. Uh, he then says miraculous powers. That seems very broad to me, like there are many things this could be. Uh, there have been many books written trying to define what miraculous powers are. I think Paul probably left it vague for a reason. But this is doing stuff in the natural world that shouldn't be possible. And we see miraculous power in the New Testament, like the bread and the loaves, that Jesus, uh, the fish and the loaves that Jesus manages to multiply, things like that. Um, prophecy. Now, prophecy can go a couple ways. Prophecy for some of us just means seeing the future. And this certainly does happen in the New Testament where a prophet says, I can tell you, Paul, that this is going to happen to you in this next city. And they see it ahead. I think prophecy more regularly is someone who is able to speak into someone's life and tell them a change that they need to make. That is often connected. right? Paul, I see that you're about to get arrested. I'm going to speak into your life and say, don't go to Jerusalem because you're going to get arrested. Those things go together. But more often in the church, we see it as someone saying, you know, I've looked at the way that you're going about this particular issue, and you need to stop it, or you're going to cause real problems and real harm. It's future-looking, but it's corrective. Uh, Distinguishing spirits, uh, how many times have we gotten a question on our card, how can you tell if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, or if it's Satan, or if it's something bad, or it's just your own will? This is the spiritual gift of distinguishing spirits. Someone who's really good when you go, I've just been having these dreams that really make me think I need to quit my job. Is God calling me to that or is that just something in my own brain? There are some people that are supernaturally good at being able to discern when God is speaking and when God is not speaking. That's um, gifts, uh, distinguishing of spirits. And then we get to speaking in tongues and interpreting tongues. Everybody's favorite part of this passage. Um, Let me give you two options of ways people talk about this. For some people, speaking in tongues just means speaking in another language. Speaking in a language you don't know. So I'm walking along and all of a sudden, boom, Chinese just pops out. This is certainly what happens in Acts 2, when you have a crowd from all over the world and the apostles start speaking, and they all go, hey, I speak Scythian, and that sounds like Scythian, which is, you know, a language. I mean, that's that's how that worked. Uh, In modern talk, we've talked far more commonly about a personal heart language that is understood by the speaker and God. Uh, Maybe you've heard someone do this in a prayer meeting, where all of a sudden they just start Coming out with something that to those of us who are critical of these things might sound babbly, like nonsense noises. And the teaching is that that is a personal heart language that that individual has with God. Um, There's a lot of debate about that. We'll maybe get to that next week. But nonetheless, those are the two options what we mean by speaking in tongues. Interpreters are someone who can take whichever of those they're receiving and interpret them and say, oh, this is what that means. Um, I would add, because I'm cantankerous this way, uh, this cannot be a language that is purely between you and God if somebody else can interpret it, right? Like By definition, it cannot be just for you and the Lord if there's the possibility a third party will come in and go, oh, I understand what he's saying. He's saying this. So that is interesting as we try to figure out what these things are. What's important here, we're about, you can get bogged down in these, is so quick, is that Paul says these are things that we get as Christians. These are gifts that are given to us. And that our church operates better when they're around. That these bless us. Imagine the way some of these gifts could be helpful. If you had uh, someone who has a gift to discern spirits. How much, can you, have you had a hard decision in your life? Can you imagine picking between two jobs or two universities or something like that? And you go, I feel so torn. I can't tell what God wants. And then you sit down with someone and they go, well, I really feel moved in the spirit that that God really wants you to do this one. And if that person has the ability to discern spirits well, that would be so helpful. Imagine how many decisions would be easier for us. Um, Imagine gifts of prophecy. If when you started in life to go down a bad path, if there could be someone that goes, I can see where this is going, it is not a good place, you should stop that. These are just all things that would help our church if we had these gifts actively moving in our bodies. And so Paul says, these are the gifts that are given, and this, these are the ways they help. And then he moves on. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, and we are all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if an ear should say, but I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? The whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the eye cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, these parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but this that its parts would have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and in each one of you is part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, Apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret, now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. Uh, There's a metaphor of the body here that we've talked about many times in church. I don't think I need to go over it again. Generally, Paul just says we all are different body parts and we all need each other the way you need all of your body parts. If you are questioning the value of that wisdom, try breaking a toe or try having appendicitis. You will quickly find that the smallest little body parts make a huge difference in your ability to function. And this is kind of Paul's point that we need all of the parts of the body. And what he then gets into is a problem that they're clearly dealing with, which is shaming or honoring certain gifts over the others. Now, we don't know exactly how this works, but I have a guess if you know what human beings are like. I'm guessing that some of these were more culturally valued or some of them were just flashier. And it caused people to make fun of people if they had a crummy gift. Or for other people to feel like, oh, I have a crummy gas, I stink, I'm not a good Christian. And kind of have a pity party about what's going on. And you can see how this would happen really easily. You have one woman who has the gift of faith. She just believes God. And she's constantly there like a rock of belief without any doubt. Then you've got somebody else who's healing broken limbs, Right? And so you get into church and someone walks in with their arm like hanging off in a grotesque way. And that one person comes up and they touch them and boom, their arm's fixed. And everyone's like, ooh. And the person with faith goes, I believe that would happen all the time. Everyone's like, sure, Nancy, whatever, shut up, sit down. This is the way it would undoubtedly go in a church service. And this is why Paul has to come in and go, if you're that faith person, if you're that person who feels looked down upon... You can't go, oh, I don't even belong in the body. I'm just an ear. No, you still belong in the body. Even if you don't want to belong in the body. Even if you think you're worthless, too bad you're not. So stop it. You're important. And similarly, if you're sitting around and you're the fanciest you know, gift in the world and everybody's oohing and eyeing at the things that you can do by the Spirit, you have no business looking down on somebody else. You have no business using that to build yourself up. Because these gifts are to build up the body. They're for one another. They are not for you. They are for you to share with other people. And that is at the core of what Paul is trying to teach them in this passage. The reality is that the church is kind of like this puzzle that has all these different parts that have to fit together and that they all have a role. Now, Paul makes an interesting rhetorical decision here. He gets finished going, you're all equally important to God. And then he starts listing the gifts again. and goes, first of all, our apostles. And second of all, our prophets. And you're like, wait a second. I thought we were all equal. What, didn't we just say that? Uh, that's really easy to be confused by. But I think what Paul's talking about here is just sequence. Um, when you're building a house, the people that lay the foundation and the people that hang up the blinds are all important people. But one of them has to do the job first, Right? You have no house if there's no foundation. And you got to, you know, build up the two-by-fours before you put up the drywall. That's as far as I can go on construction metaphors. But nonetheless, right, like this, is, this is the sequence of how things go. And so this is all Paul is saying. Your apostles are the people that start new stuff. They come in and they have dreams about what things will be. And the prophets are the people that look into the future and try to give direction about where to move. So they come next. And then your teachers come next, because they start building up the body and telling them what God desires for us. And then all this other stuff, all the miracle working and tongues and all that stuff, that stuff pops in at the end, because that stuff flourishes once the apostles and the prophets and the teachers have set the table to build the church the way it needs to be built. And so that's all that Paul's talking about. It's not greater or lesser gifts, It's uh, and not who's more important or less important, it's How do you build a house structurally? How do you build a church structurally? It starts with apostles and then moves to prophets and then teachers and et cetera, et cetera. All right. Uh, The big point here is the value and the diversity that God wants in his church. All these roles play a part. I mentioned at the beginning of this, this is a text that people often fight about. So I want to, this is my general principle of interpretation. You've got to start in a difficult text with the really big obvious stuff that we too often miss. Right? Like, uh, how do you start the book of Revelation? Jesus loves you. Now, that may sound simplistic. Well, that doesn't help. No, it helps a lot. Because there's a lot of parameters that you stay within. If you remember the first message of the book is that Jesus really loves the church. Similarly, in this passage, I want to talk about the big parameters. And I promise next week we will move more granular into the specifics. But here's the big things that we got to learn from this passage. Number one, God is giving you amazing gifts. If you are a Christian, you are receiving amazing gifts. You may look at this list and say, I don't have any of this. But Paul is very clear in here that every Christian receives some distribution of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has gifted you with something. Now we can talk about how to figure out what that is and what is it? Why don't I know what it is? And why don't we talk about it? Those are great questions. But nonetheless, you have a gift. You have been given the Spirit of God. Because uh, Peter promises on the day of Pentecost that all of our sons and daughters, both young and old, men and women, will all receive the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is empowering your life. You have good gifts from the Spirit. Second of all, those gifts are a manifestation of God. Paul makes clear, we have these gifts... But they come from God. And so if you have the gift of healing in a way that makes you a jerk, it's not a gift of healing from God. Right? Because that working that is coming out of you is coming from the Lord. So it should have the attributes of the Lord. The spiritual gifts you have are an outpouring of the Holy Spirit within you, which means that they need to generally demonstrate the character of God. Does so that all makes sense? That there should be a deep connection between your experience of spiritual gifts and the goodness of God. And if your gifts are being experienced in such a way that makes you a mean, nasty, ornery, terrible person, you've got to start asking, is this really a spiritual gift or not? Third big point, they're for the church. They're not for you. So if you have these spiritual gifts, you give them away. You use them to bless other people. And that means ultimately they are about service. They are not about building up yourself. If you have these spiritual gifts, they are made so that you may serve others, not so that you may lord them over others. And finally, we shouldn't feel any kind of shame about our spiritual gifts. We should not assign shame to other people because they've got a stinky gift. They're all good gifts. Be proud of them. Feel like you're strong and powerful and good because you have the Holy Spirit moving in you. If we keep all of this stuff in line, God gives us gifts. Those gifts show us his character. They're meant to be given to the church so that we can serve other people and not build ourselves up. And we should feel good about the fact that whatever he does in us is his powerful working. Now we have a framework that we can understand the rest of the chapter. And we'll do that next week. Um, we are going to have a question, uh, we're going to have a question and answer here in a minute. Tori's going to sing a song first for us. If you have any questions, like I said, ask what you want to ask. And if I just want to push it to next week, I will. But you have Q&A cards in front of you. We're going to sing this song and then we'll have a little time to um, talk about this more. This is the big tease at the end of this chapter. Paul says, I will show you a more excellent way. He gets done talking about how all these gifts are important and valuable. And he goes, but there's a better one. And then next week will be about that better one. Um, all right, let's start with this one. Uh, no. It's not as a bad one. I have a sequence I want to do. Administration. Yes. Awesome. Gift of administration. Amen. Uh, all right, so we'll start with this one. Isn't the speaking in tongues through the spirit giving us utterance, evidence of Christ's living spirit within us? Uh, so this is sometimes taught in churches that um, speaking in tongues is really important because it shows that you've sort of been filled with the Holy Spirit and sort of proves that you are a Christian. Um, personally, I don't believe that is true. And there's a main reason I believe that. Uh, Paul, at the end of this passage, says, are all prophets? And the answer is what? No. no. He says, are all teachers? The answer, no. And then what does he say? Do all speak in tongues? The answer is No. That list there at the end of this chapter says, don't look down on anyone because they don't have your gift because none of these gifts are universal. I think that's pretty clearly what the text says at the end of this chapter. When he goes through that list, do all have this? No. Do all have this? Do all have this? Do all have this? The rhetorical questions to which we go, no, 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 but yet we're all in the body. Uh, Because of that, I am very personally leery of ever judging a brother or sister's faith based on whether or not they have a spiritual gift. Because I think that's starting to do the exact opposite thing of what Paul asked us to do here, which is you all matter. You're all important. And if you're an ear that doesn't happen, you know, to make this more clear, he talks about ears and hands. If you speak tongues and aren't a prophet, you're part of the body. And if you don't speak in tongues, but you're a prophet, you're part of the body too. And so... I would say I am very leery of that. Now, I do understand there are forms of Christianity, particularly within Pentecostalism and charismatic, um, charismatic belief, that will say that some of these spiritual gifts are, they'll even distinguish between tongues in chapter 12 and tongues, tongues in chapter 14, to say you've got to do this. Let me put it this way, and if you have to leave our church, I hate that. If you have to speak in tongues to be a real Christian, the, your pastor here is not a real Christian, Okay. I don't speak in tongues. I've never figured out how that works. It's not been an experience of mine. I think that I'm still saved and I'm still God's person and that the Holy Spirit is still alive in my life. Amen. And I just, so I'm really cautious about judging people as being legit Christians or not legit Christians. I think that starts to do exactly what this text is telling us not to do. Again, that is my belief. If you disagree with me, that's okay. All right? But that is kind of my understanding. All right. Uh, next question: Do you think people are born with faith, or is it something you can develop? Uh, someone I know doesn't follow Christ, and it's possible for someone like them to develop faith uh, to receive the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't think we're. I don't think we're born with faith. I think some, it comes easier for some of us than others. Some of us are more predisposed. The way I always put this. Um, <laughs> I think we don't have any old enough for this to be in trouble. Um, when you're a child and you are told about a large, jovial individual that presents presents around the 25th of December, um, I believed that until I was in sixth grade. Because, oh man, I'm getting <laughs> it, it took me a functional knowledge of physics to go, oh, wait a minute, there's not nearly enough time for right? That's the kid I was. My parents said it was true. I believed it because I was predisposed to faith. Uh, I think it's fair to say my sister is a bit more of a skeptic. She figured it out at like second grade. I think she may have got it before I did, even though we're like four or five years different, right? Because, uh, three and a half years different, because she was just not as predisposed to just accept things as I was. And neither of those I think are good or bad. But I do think that we're naturally that way. That being said, I do think anybody can come to faith. Um, Can I pick on you for a second, Mr. Richard? Yes, sir. Richard, if you do not know his story, Richard was adamantly writing articles in the newspaper about how God did not exist and you're a fool to believe it. Up until 70, 75 years old? Something like that? And then God moved in his heart, and Richard is Mm -hmm. just a great servant of Christ. Mm -hmm. People change. People develop. So you don't have to be born with it. It can happen, and it can move, and it can change. Mm -hmm. And that's a beautiful thing. And we don't give up. I mean, just imagine people have looked at Richard and said, Well, he's 70 years old. Can't teach an old dog new tricks. You know, like, it would have been terrible. But that's not the way we go about things, because we believe God can always move in somebody's heart. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you, Richard, for letting me use you as an example. Um, um, so the question here is, um, um, do you have to learn to love people you don't know? And what would you say about a person that feels hurt because they have so much love for others? Um, I would say generally we want to have a love for all humanity. And God calls us to that. And this is why we have this important doctrine called the image of God, that all human beings are created in the image of God. It means that if you love your creator, you must necessarily love any human being, because they have that image in them. And this is um, just my opinion. Our human rights that we have in our culture and society, human rights are the image of God turned into a secular concept. Okay? it's, this is the same theological principle. Everyone has inherent dignity. So yeah, we've got to learn to love people. And even if we don't know them, what's a really good exercise? Find someone on TV who you'll never meet that you think is just a total pariah to society. And then go, man, I need to learn how to love them. To have a legitimate desire for their best being. And that's an incredible it's – it's something we can do. The ancient people, I guess I could have, look at Nero's face on a coin, right? I'm going to love that guy. But um, it's just – yeah, I think it's something that, that God does call us to. All right, I think that's our questions for now. We'll have another song, and we'll close and prayer. Oh, oh, well, what's up, Tom? It's always me, you know. There's, um, there's another thing. i got two-part First of all, should every Christian expect to have a spiritual what it is? It's a really good question. Um, Yes, two questions. Does every Christian expect to have a spiritual gift and how do you figure out what it is? Um, The first one I'll answer well and the second one I'll answer poorly but do better job. I do believe everyone should have a spiritual gift. There is a good argument here that we should not even talk about these as gifts as if they're like a thing that is handed to us. But that instead, spiritual gifts are the working of the Spirit out of our life. So should we all expect that the Holy Spirit will work in our lives? Absolutely. Now, what Paul's talking here is like naming specific ways that the Spirit does work out of our lives. But this is an important um, thing that we sometimes get scrambled. Is, he says, there's many workings. We have it up in our Bibles. The easiest way you can translate that one sentence There are many workings that come out through us, but there is one worker, which is the Holy Spirit. And so we all have the Holy Spirit working through us. So we should expect those gifts. Now, for many of us, we see this list of gifts and we go, oh, but there's also a gift in Romans that usually has one that more people are capable of seeing and going, oh, that's me. And I think it's possible there are spiritual gifts that are not listed in the New Testament, because Paul didn't think, oh, I need to make a list for all of eternity. Like, I don't, my opinion, Paul didn't know he was writing 1 Corinthians when he wrote a letter to the Corinthians. Yeah. He was just writing a letter to an annoying group of people he had to deal with. And so he didn't go, this will be saved for all of human history. I must list every spiritual gift. He just goes, oh, you know, like this one and this one and this one and then yada, 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 and you move on. So I think there are some spiritual gifts that are not listed in the scriptures. And we don't have to be so tight about whether or not it's in one of the lists or not to say the spirit is working through me. How do you figure out what they are? There are really great spiritual gift inventories. There's tests you can take, just like the tests you took in high school to see if you should be a plumber or an electrician or whatever. There's tests like that that'll help you see what your spiritual gifts are. Uh, and they're pretty good and they're pretty accurate. Um, I'm just, I think Bruce I'll lean on, because they use them with Kairos to help church planners. I know we've gone through that process. He might be able to point you to some of those. Um, Now, I think there's more spiritual ways to find them, but I need to study more about that and talk about it next week. You can take a test online, though, is one of the ways that you can do it. (laughs)